If you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 17 with me. Matthew writes, beginning at verse 14, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, Oh, you, believe, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Father, bless your word to us this morning. Give us ears that hear. Give us hearts that believe and welcome the truth of your word. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the setting of our passage, as, as I've been saying the past few weeks, goes back into Matthew chapter 16. God the Father had revealed to Peter and the others that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That truth is the basis for everything that Jesus came to accomplish. Jesus announced his true purpose. He was going to die in Jerusalem at the hands of the wicked and then be raised on the third day. Peter rebukes the Lord for saying this, and Jesus in turn rebukes him, and then he calls his disciples to the very same uh, faith and obedience and submission to the Father that he had. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. A few days later, six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up with him on a mountain, and he was glorified. He was manifested in his glory. And they had another lesson in Jesus' primacy over all things. They heard the Father speak from heaven saying, uh, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And when Jesus led Peter, James, and John back down the mountain to where the nine were, he found this crisis has arisen. And we see a desperate father. This is really a terrible situation. An innocent child is being abused by a foul spirit. The natural world has no answer. Had no answer then, it has no answer now. Jesus had been casting out demons, though, his entire ministry. He is the Father's hope. When the Father heard that Jesus and his disciples were in Caesarea Philippi, now is his opportunity. And he brings the boy to Jesus, but Jesus isn't there. He's up on the mountain. And so he asks the nine to cast it out, and they fail. That's... The cause and the, the situation, the foundation for this remarkable statement in verse 17 when Jesus says, Oh, you unbelieving and perverse generation. The very harsh words. Uh, it's interesting if you think about it, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus is never shocked by sin. He dealt with sinners of all sorts. He never blinked. 
nobody ever came to him and told him what he did or he found out what they did and he shook his head and said, I'm just trying to come to grips with that. How could you do that? He, he never did that. The only time we see Jesus express anger and frustration and shock, it seems, is, is when he's faced with unbelief. It's usually unbelief on the part of the leadership because they had the most reason to believe. They were the experts in the scriptures. They should have recognized him, even if the people didn't. And so there are times that he's angry. And now he, he calls someone an unbelief and perverse, unbelieving and perverse generation. Who is he talking about? Well, some have assumed that he's talking about the, the whole population of Israel. My problem is that the whole population of Israel is not there to hear him. Some have assumed that he's talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leadership, but there's no sign that they're there. Some commentators, just a few, have said he's talking about the Father, but the Father came to him. See, I think the context of the passage says he's actually talking about his own disciples. When they ask, why couldn't we cast it out? He says, because your faith is too little. And then we see in verse 21, it's a variant, but it's quoting from Mark 9, 29. This kind only comes out by prayer. And so the lesson, I think, is for his disciples. If you read Mark chapter 9, uh, verses, uh, I believe it's 13 to 29, it's a long passage. The focus of Mark is on the father and the boy. That's where the story unfolds. And then at the very end, his disciples say, why couldn't we do that? And Jesus simply says, this kind only comes out by prayer. In Matthew, he gets through the father and the son pretty quickly. And he has more of an extended conversation with his disciples. Why are they unbelieving? Why are they perverse? Because their faith is too little. Uh, we've already seen the littleness of their faith and their rejection of the fact that Jesus would die and rise again. Peter rebuked him for that. They're unbelieving because their faith is too little. Why are they perverse? We've we got to understand what perverse means. In our time, perverse usually has a, a, a different context, just to be appropriate with the children who are here. Perverse has a fairly narrow context. The word translated perverse means going against what is reasonable, logical, expected, and proper. That's all it means. And, and in fact, if you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, for the English word perverse, you'll see basically the same thing. To be perverse simply means to go against what's appropriate, to go against what's reasonable. So Jesus' disciples are not perverse in the way we think about it. They're perverse in that they have taken an, Ill, an unreasonable, illogical, unexpected, and improper approach to handling this demon. And that's why they failed to cast it out. Now, I'm really glad that Jesus healed the boy, that he relieved the boy's suffering, that he answered the father's prayer. But that's not why Matthew included this narrative. We've already seen Jesus cast out demons. It sets us up for Jesus to deal with his disciples and their small faith. Now, I want you to notice, too, that when Jesus rebukes them, Oh, oh, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? He doesn't then offer the correction. He rebukes. They come to him 
in verse 19, the disciples came to him privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Can I just say there's nothing wrong with asking why we fail? It's a good thing to ask why we fail. It's a good thing to get feedback. It's a good thing to ask for input. And can I say that there's nothing wrong with asking for those things privately? We need to be accountable, but we should be accountable to those that it's safe to be accountable with. We should be accountable to those who are biblically mature. There are some people who cannot deal with your sins. It would be disturbing. It would be stumbling to them. There are some people who can't deal with your doubts. You don't have to vent your entire life to everybody who wants. It's a good idea to have somebody that you can be accountable with. Jesus' disciples had a hard time believing what he had said. We see that. The Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. They had a hard time dealing with that. But in the face of his rebuke, they came back. Why? Why couldn't we do this? We understand that we were unbelieving. We understand that we're perverse. But why couldn't we do this? I love what Jesus says in John chapter 3. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been done in, in God. These men are godly. They're imperfect. Their faith is not what it should be, but they're godly. And when Jesus rebukes their their unbelief, they want to know why. They want to know why. Notice their question is not, why didn't it go out? Their question is, why could we not cast it out? There's an assumption to their question. The assumption is they should have been able to. We should have been able to do this. We should have been able to cast it out. Why weren't we able to? They're confused by their failure. Jesus' answer is in verses 20 and 21. 21 is a variant. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Jesus said to them, because of your little faith. Why could we not cast it out? Because of your little faith. That's the answer. The illustration is, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Their faith was too little. Now, we can take that in two different ways, and it's important we take it in the right way. There are some people who think of faith like we would think of water. You can have a drop of water, or you can have an ocean's worth of water, but it's all water. And they would look at this and say they didn't have enough faith. Well, we use that phrase. I'm hoping to have enough faith, or do you have enough faith? Faith is not a substance that you can have more or less of. The other way to understand it is that faith is like a muscle. We all have the same number of muscles, but not all muscles are equally strong. So Jesus says, if you have faith like a mustard seed tiny little faith. A mustard seed is not the smallest seed there is, but it's a very small seed. Linda and I make pastrami, and mustard seed goes into the, the, the rub for, for pastrami, and they're very, very small. 
The point isn't to say it's the smallest seed. The point is to say compare the size of a mustard seed to the size of a mountain. And that mountain faced with the faith of that mustard seed can't stay. But notice too what he says. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. He doesn't say nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible to you. And then, but this kind does not go out by prayer, except by prayer and fasting. Verse 21. Now, I said that verse 21 is a variant. The copyist, a copyist in the 5th century, went over to Mark chapter 9, verse 29, for this kind only goes out by prayer, and said, Matthew doesn't say anything like that. Matthew should say something like that. Let's take what Mark says and put it in Matthew. And because of the time, he added the word fasting. Fasting is not in the original text in in Mark. Now, is it wrong to say this kind only goes out by prayer? No, Jesus says that in Mark. And so we need to keep that in mind. Now, on the issue of manuscript variants, I I don't want to give you a whole sermon on this, but it's important to be reminded every once in a while. Until the invention of the printing press, all copies of documents were made by hand. And when you have handmade copies, there's going to be variants. There's going to be differences. We call them variants. Some of those variants are accidental. They're like spelling errors or uh, uh, duplicating a word. You're copying, you look over, you catch a word, you write it down, you rewrite the word. Some, some Greek manuscripts have duplicated lines because they didn't, they just kind of forgot where they were and they rewrote the line or they rewrote a phrase. Some variants are deliberate. In one of Paul's epistles, for instance, he may have written the Lord Jesus and a copyist says, ah, oh, but he's the Lord Jesus Christ, let's add Christ. That's a variant. Is it incorrect? No. But it's a variant. It's not part of the original text. In the case of what we have now, a copyist in the 5th century decided that Matthew needed to have the same phrase that Mark did. And again, because of the time, he adds the phrase, and fasting. This kind only goes out by prayer and fasting. He simply added it in. It's not wrong. It's not incorrect. The fasting is a little squirrely. But it's not incorrect to say that they only go out by prayer. It's simply not part of the original text. So I want you to keep a few things in mind about variants, and and then we'll move back to the text. First of all, variants are inevitable when you have a handwritten manuscript. Second, no variant changes the meaning of the text. Third, while there there are deliberate variants, they were always added to strengthen the text. Lord Jesus to Lord Jesus Christ. This kind only goes out by prayer. It's meant to strengthen and emphasize the text. And finally, no major doctrines are based on choosing a variant. No doctrine is based on, well, if we read it this way instead of that way. So what we have in Scripture is remarkable. We recognize that there are variants because we know that they're there. Don't don't worry about looking at the text and thinking, well, maybe that's not what was originally said. We have a hugely high degree of confidence in the manuscripts that we have. So back to the text, why could we not cast it out? Jesus answers, because of your little faith and lack of prayer. 
There's little faith and lack of prayer. What is faith? Faith is simply you believing, trusting, and relying on God. Faith is nothing more than you believing what God has said, trusting in his character and his nature, and relying on him to be who he is. There's nothing fancy about faith. There's nothing profound about it. Faith is just you believing, trusting, and relying on God. Some say they believe God, but they won't trust him. Some say they trust God, but they won't rely on him. Faith requires all three. We have to believe what God has said. We have to trust in his character and his nature, and we have to rely on him as the only one who can actually work. What is prayer? There's a lot of ways we could define that. I like what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of sin and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That's a pretty good definition of prayer. Again, there's nothing fancy to it. Jesus instructs us in prayer through his apostles. He says that we are to pray in secret. To the Father, who knows what we need before we ask, he asks, we ask, I'm sorry. We are to pray in faith. We're to pray in Jesus' name. We are to pray with an attitude of supplication and thanksgiving. Supplication meaning humility and acceptance of the answer. We are to pray according to the will of God. We are to pray in agreement with other believers. We are to pray without losing heart. Grab a bulletin. My, my phone number and my email address is on there, and I'll send you the references if you want the references. So what does prayer achieve? Anything God wills. Anything God wants to do. Prayer will do anything God wants to do. Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But notice what he says. Not nothing will be impossible for you, but nothing will be impossible to you. And we immediately take that, many of us at least, and think, well, it means nothing will be impossible to you to accomplish. No. If you believe the promises of God, if you believe the word of God, if you trust in his character and his power, and you rely on him for all things, when you're faced with a situation, you'll pray. Because nothing is impossible for God. Jeremiah 32, 17 Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord Yahweh, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. If nothing is too difficult for the God you believe, trust, and rely on, then nothing will be impossible to you. It's not that everything is possible for us. It's that if God is involved, everything is possible to us because nothing is impossible for him. Why? Because we pray. In the parallel passage in Mark, the father says to Jesus, this demon has thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus says, if, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And again, not all things are possible for, but all things are possible to. 
If your faith is in the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, then nothing will seem impossible to you because you'll believe and trust and rely on the fact that God can do everything. And you'll pray. So let's think about the nine in light of this. The father came to them with, uh, to, with his demon-possessed son, urging them to help. They tried to cast it out and failed. Why did they fail? Because their faith was too small. And because their faith was too small, they didn't pray. They acted. It takes more faith to pray than to act. Acting is what we do. Doing is what we do. There's a problem. Let's solve the problem. The lesson here is that it takes more faith to pray than to act. Now, what Jesus says is the smallest faith is sufficient faith. Even faith the size of a mustard seed is enough to move a mountain. That's because the smallest faith is still faith. It calls upon God. It believes him, it trusts him, and it relies on him. The nine didn't do this. They didn't believe him. They didn't trust him. They didn't rely on him. And so they just took it upon themselves. And they found that it was impossible for them. Faith doesn't do the work. Faith calls upon God to do the work. I want to give you an analogy of this. And I want to tell you going in, it's a terrible analogy. It is an awful analogy. It's a bad analogy. And I'll explain why it's bad. I know why it's bad. But it's, it's an analogy that in one sense will help. I have no power to start my car. I could exert all of my strength the rest of my life and never get my car to start. But if I use the key, which weighs a third of an ounce, my car weighs 3,600 pounds. The key weighs a third of an ounce. That key can start the car if there's gas and there's a charge in the battery, which is not a guarantee, but there's, there's the key. Now, why is it a terrible analogy? Two reasons. One is the key works directly on the car, and faith does not work directly on the problem. Faith calls upon God to do something. Faith is not what you use to change the situation. Faith is, is you going to God and saying, I believe you, trust you, and rely on you. Would you do something? So it's a bad analogy for that reason. The second reason is that my car has no will of its own. If there's gas in the car and the battery's in good shape and all other things are equal, it will start. It has to start. It must start. It must obey the key. But God has a will, and his will is not my will. His will is not your will. We can't begin to comprehend the enormity and the complexity of what he is bringing about we tend to think of our lives as being compartmentalized and fairly small and these little boxes of motion. But for God, from the moment he's spoken to everything in creation through eternity to come, everything is linked. Everything is tied together as part of his purpose. And so we can pray for different people to be healed. And he generally doesn't heal because his purpose is being worked out. And there are times he does. And God can do anything. There are some who would say, if you have the faith, whatever you ask for will be done. And that's not true. And I can prove it's not true in a way that nobody can argue with. There's not a prayer on earth that will cause God to save Satan. Right? 
there's not a false teacher out there that would say if you had enough faith, you could pray Satan into the kingdom of God. Well, that's proof that God has a will, and his will is not subject to us. See, part of the supplication part of prayer is offering and accepting the answer in peace and in gratitude for what God does. So let's talk about the disciples' state of unbelief. Matthew, is, I think, is enormously humble here. This is a humiliating thing. Matthew says, uh, the other eight and myself were down, on, down at the base of the mountain. Jesus was up there with Peter, James, and John. Here comes the father with a demon-possessed son. We'd gone out on a mission trip. Jesus gave us authority to cast out demons and heal every kind of disease. We'd done it before. And one of us couldn't do it, and two of us couldn't do it, and all nine of us together, we couldn't do it. We failed. And we asked Jesus why we failed, and he says, because your faith was so small, it was so weak, that you tried to do it yourself instead of praying. And I'm going to tell you that, Matthew says. And then he says, I'm going to give you the evidence that our faith was that weak. Here's the evidence. Jesus uh, as they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus says to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Why were they deeply grieved? Because they believed half of what he said. If they hadn't believed any of it, they wouldn't have been grieved. They would have been confused. If they had believed all that he had said, they would have rejoiced. They believed him when he said, I'm going to die. But they didn't believe him when he said, I'm going to rise again. Matthew unveils their weak, weak, little, itty-bitty, insufficient, impotent faith. He just lays it out and says, that, that was us. That was us. The truth is, none of the gospel writers, none of the writers of the New Testament present themselves as heroes. Not one of them says, we were there, we saw it. We're the victors, come with us. Every one of them says, here's my failure. Here's my shame. I'm saved by grace. I follow him by his grace. There's a danger to weak faith. It'll only believe part of what God has said. The faith movement, the so-called faith movement, is based on no faith at all. Their faith is so weak they can't accept when God says no. They'll only take a yes they're like children who are told no in the grocery store and throw a tantrum and think by demanding it they're going to get what they want. And a good parent doesn't give in. A good parent says, no, I'm the parent. I make the decisions. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Isn't the aim of our lives to please God? Well, of course. Of course. I love the fact that they needed the rebuke, but Jesus didn't abandon them. Jesus didn't say, I'm done with you guys. He allows these things to come about. He probably deliberately stays up on the mountain so that this situation comes so that he can teach them. Because the time is coming when he's going to leave. And if they tried to preach the gospel and lead the church and build the church and take it to the world on their own strength, they would have died the first day. They had to rely on him. 
as we bring this home then, uh, you and I are typically not faced with demons, but we do face countless situations that are beyond us. One example, just one example, is evangelism. Some believers think that sharing the gospel is like putting a key in the car. If you have the right key, if you have the right method, if you say it the right way, the person will believe. And when they fail, then they think, okay, I had the wrong key. I need a different method. That's why you can go on Amazon or a Christian bookstore and you'll find dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of books on evangelism. Why are there so many books on evangelism? Because it's not a method. But people who want a method are always looking for the next thing. That person usually ends up thinking, I need a better way. But they never find it because they get a new book and they try that and that doesn't work. And then they get a new book and that doesn't work. Other believers become disillusioned with evangelism because it doesn't work. They keep trying and the person doesn't believe. And then they say, well, I guess I don't have the gift. There's no gift of evangelism. Ephesians 4 says there is a gift of an evangelist. But there's no gift of evangelism. We're all called to share the gospel as the Lord gives us opportunity. In both of these cases, the believer ends up on a never-ending search for the right method or thinking that they don't have the right gift. In both cases, their faith is too small. What we should be doing as we evangelize or as we teach or as we bless others, as we encourage others, as we resist temptation, is we should believe what God says and trust him and rely on him. Now, there's often something for us to do once we've prayed, to speak the gospel, to cast out a demon. There's often something to do, but not until we've prayed, not until we've called upon God Not until we've believed his promises, we've trusted him to be faithful, and we're relying entirely on him to accomplish the work. Faith is you believing God, trusting him, and relying on him. And this life is the school of faith. It's where we learn to do that. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your kindness to us, for your patience with us. As Jesus was patient with these men, you are patient with us. You teach us day by day, little bits at a time, one step at a time. Please help us to to learn a little bit of this lesson today. Please help us to believe what you have said in your word. Please help us to trust that you are God. Please help us to rely on you. To act when you call us to act but never without prayer. We thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.